What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does the diaspora mean to you? The diaspora to disperse. A scattered population whose origins lie in a separate geographic locale. The diaspora is not a singular experience originating from one place. It is a multitude, a complex experience with many origins. Diasporic Foodways examines how food has traveled from origin to adopted home, and in doing so, taken on new meaning while steadfastly keeping communities connected to their heritage. In many instances, in the grappling is the creation of a third culture. In today's episode, we hear from several voices connecting us to diasporic foodways. At Third Culture Bakery in Berkeley, California, the team shares with us how their mochi muffins connect their Indonesian and Taiwanese heritage. Catherine Bowen tells us the story of honoring her roots through pupusas, the iconic Salvadorian flatbread. And Chef Ashley Shanti, who lives in the Appalachian South, tells her story and amplifies those of African-Americans in her hybrid West African and Appalachian cuisine. We learn how to make another kind of flatbread, the Jamaican Yanni Keikes, a dish with Afro-Caribbean origins, popular on the Atlantic coast. And finally, Arohi Narain unpacks the colonial history of Japanese curry as a cultural and culinary artifact from the perspective of an Indian woman in Tokyo. On today's episode of Point of Origin, we're exploring what the diaspora means and how it informs and enriches our food. I grew up in Indonesia and also in New York City. That's Sam Butar Butar. He's the co-owner and chef at Third Culture Bakery in Oakland, California. 
And so we kind of identified as third culture kids and it was kind of like more of a sociology term and it was trying to describe kids who originally they grew up in a in an immigrant family and they didn't particularly attach themselves to the culture where they grew up nor to the culture where they were born. My partner and I felt that we were too white to be Asian and too Asian to be white. Ended up forming our own culture, our third interpretation of it. We wanted to create a bakery basically that tells that story and all the flavors and all the pastries and drinks. A third culture, they're epitomizing third culture by creating mochi muffins and mochi donuts, an Asian dessert molded into an American pastry. And I, I also really missed all these flavors that I grew up eating, all these tropical fruits like passion fruit and guava and mango. Selfishly, I want to eat all these things. I really wanted to create a bakery and I actually partnered. My partner, Winter, he uh, was born in Taiwan, but also grew up in L.A., came and it was like, you know, I kind of want to create a bakery where it reflects our upbringing. When Sam and his co-founder, Winter, launched their bakery, they led with the intention of creating the pastries of their childhood. Yeah, the, f the first adapt adaptation was actually just um, taking taking my mom's recipe and kind of putting it in a muffin tin. Um, that's how it started. I, I still remember the, f the first night I made it and I was just shocked at how this contrast of texture that you get out of baking emoji and you know the outside gets kind of crispy and crunchy and the insides stay soft and gooey. Let's talk about one of the ingredients that makes these cultural ties and that is the mochi itself. So could you explain to us what is mochi? Mochi is it's a type of rice. Uh, it's basically glutinous rice. It's a variety of rice that is cultivated to have more a specific starch called amylose. So when it's cooked, it, it kind of connects together and it forms this kind of sticky network, sticky, chewy network. The word mochi itself is actually Japanese, but the, the crop itself um, is from China. You know, the, the species of rice comes from, and it ever since it spread to Japan, it spread to the Southeast Asian, and it's spread to Thailand. So it's very interesting in that Japanese um, Japanese, Southeast Asian, and Chinese, they all now have their own varieties of mochi rice. They have different qualities. The Japanese is more supple, more soft. Um, the Southeast Asian is more firm. In China and Japan, the mochi tends to uh, be pounded uh, into this kind of soft, sticky thing, and um, usually it's stuffed, um, I believe, in China. Um, in Indonesia, though, um, it tends to be more like the, the steam cake that I told you where it's layered and it's cut. Um, I think because of the fact that Indonesian, they just love to eat snacks on the go. You mentioned that when you were a child, you grew up eating these pastries called kulapis. They're a Southeast Asian steamed cake. Can you tell us more about the pastry and your childhood memories of having this dish? Yeah, it's a super special dish. My my mom usually she makes it during the big holiday, Christmas and New Year's, um, and it's a super traditional cake that you make kind of a batter, a, kind of a thin batter with 
rice flour, coconut milk, and uh, traditionally in Southeast Asian pastries, uh, they use this herb called pandan. And it, it, if you ever if you ever Google it, it looks like this long, kind of grassy leaf. And um, Southeast Asian people, the Indonesian and Mal Malaysian and Thai um, cooking uses this leaf as a flavoring, and it smells a lot like vanilla, like a very grassy sweet. And so she would kind of blend that all together and um, have a, a giant steamer going on and uh, would pour this batter, close the lid, and, and, and then the batter would kind of like thicken into this kind of um, tree layer. And then she would keep adding layer and she would pour another second layer, um, close the lid. And so um, it would have this like, you know, 10 or 15 layers. And usually she makes it kind of little fun and it's different colors. There's like green and red, um, depending on like what kind of flavorings or what kind of color she uses. And then when it's all done, she would let it cool, take it out of the steamer, let it cool and then unmold it. And when you cut it, you see these like beautiful lines. And as a kid, I just remember loving, I, I don't know if it's, this is like a childhood thing, but I think kids love chewy things, you know? Mm -hmm. So it has this like chewy, sticky, kind of sticks in your teeth kind of consistency, um, kind of this nutty, coconutty flavor, but very subtle. You know? um, and yeah, that was my memory of it. And my mom would always, because it's such a long process to make, and she would make the batter from, from whole rice like whole grain rice. So she would have to soak it overnight and then blend it in the morning. So it was it was a very special dessert, time consuming, and you would only do it for your family or a loved one. So um, I think a lot of Indonesian kids have a very special memory of that. You know, um, telling the story of um, why the pastry meant so much for me and what, what I wanted to do. But um, I think I think that the, the pastry itself and the storytelling together kind of just made a life of its own. And I'm just still amazed to this day that so many people eat our pastries because of that. Sam and I start to talk about fusion cuisine. Is there a conflict between preserving and honoring tradition? How do foods and recipes modernize? And how do they modernize based on location and adaptation? I feel like Asian um, cuisine as like more of a trophy and I feel a lot of places do that they 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 just they just fuse cuisine for the sake of fusing cuisine mm -hmm. and I feel a lot of time they don't understand the heart of like you know the heart of Japanese cooking like what is it or the heart of Vietnamese cooking and I feel that a lot of times it's it goes awry just because they don't really understand the history and the flavor and and for me at the end of the day it's just it has to taste good you know I, th there is a lot of resistance from people who are kind of purists and being like oh that's not you know that's not indonesian food or that's not vietnamese food and i think for us we are not trying to make indonesian pastry and i think if you acknowledge the fact that you're not trying to make vietnamese cuisine modern quote-unquote modern or vietnamese cuisine better um and you're trying to like lift it up from the you know the dark ages or whatever and the savior kind of mentality i think that that's when it gets troubling and for us it's like you know we're i'm just trying to make stuff that that i grew up with and i'm trying to make it to my interpretation in and i'm not calling it necessarily american food i'm not necessarily asian uh indonesian it's kind of like a a thing of its own and it's it's a very thin line i think any exposure of 
um, other culture that are un, that are underrepresented. I think it's a good thing, but I think that the intention has to be there, the good intention, and not just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, so you bring up uh, many good points here. Uh, I agree with you fundamentally that Asian cuisine as a moniker is absurdly broad. And it's also usually the first cuisine that comes to mind when we think of fusion. And we think of all the parts of fusion that have gone awry. Um, It's like if you just slap Asian or pan-Asian alongside any other global cuisine, we just call it fusion. Um, so that is understandably maddening. Um, I, I'm really interested in what you said around uh, the fear of bringing this savior complex into into your cooking. Um, I haven't exactly thought of it in those terms. I mean, of course, we we know about the savior complex outside of food as a concept. But as a third culture kid, it seems that you're saving the cuisine by not being a purist. Um, or I think that's really too much to ask of anyone cooking the food of their childhood or the, the food of their memory. I think a lot goes in the naming because the naming kind of um, presents the viewpoint, you know. Um, and I think I think for me, the most compelling, the most compelling cuisine, I think I always say it has a sense of time and space. Um, and I always tell my, my partner, Winter, you know, I was like, you know, when we go to a restaurant, I just love places that just feels that it belongs to a time and space and not necessarily that that has to be authentic or it has to be like true to whatever tastes it comes from that country but i think it's just like it 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 speaks very uh, um honestly about like where they interpret the cuisine so why is it perceived as acceptable to take french or italian dishes and adapt them Sam has a perfect explanation, and it's not one lacking nuance. You know, we we find it acceptable, and myself included, if if someone makes an Italian or French, and you know, it, even if they're not French or they're taking it to another direction, society accepts it and cognizant of. What I find to be true is that I think a lot of Asian cuisines have had so much history of just colonization and a history of change and that's part of the reason why asian chefs and you know third culture kids who who want to make these food are are more aware of it and i think the same can't be necessarily said about french or italian and just because it's so ingrained and so part of american culture already and so there's you know there's there's a lot of history there and and i feel that a lot of food that we make are also reflective of these uh, occupation times. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I wish I could tell you I came from a family that cooked together. That from an early age, I helped my mother recreate beloved dishes from her birthplace, El Salvador. I wish I could say I looked like her because to me, she has always been consummate beauty. I wish I could claim that I spoke fast, seamless Spanish with her. That's Catherine Bowen. Catherine is an Oakland-based writer with a background in law and food policy and is a first-generation Salvadorian. The truth is that I'm often ashamed of my Spanish, which is choppy and littered with English words, in part because my father insisted that, growing up, we speak a language he understood. The reality is that I received his skin and European last name, and though there is undoubtedly privilege that attends to those attributes, they made me feel less able to claim my Salvadoran ancestry. My cultural, linguistic, and physical insecurities were, in some ways, exacerbated in my birthplace, Miami, Florida, where the population is predominantly Hispanic, but I never felt Latina enough. Looking back now, I partly attribute my early cultural dissonance to narrative. As a child, I heard only conflict-ridden stories of Salvador, a place that my mother says she escaped, where I learned she ran from police after peaceful protests, had friends shot at, acquaintances kidnapped, among so many other casualties of the country's 20-year civil war. We didn't discuss home-cooked Salvadoran specialties or treasured family recipes. Our dishes, tamales and pupusas and yuca, were store-bought near holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas. Still, it was the one time I felt that, as a family, we were Salvadoran together. I saw my mother, her brothers, and my grandmother celebrating this food and with this food. I recall pupusas hermetically, expertly fashioned, sheathed in a light caramel masa, their cores molten, brimming with rich, smoky cheese. The pupusas with loroco, a zippy green vegetable, were my grandmother's favorites, so they were mine too. I recall fat logs of fried yuca, their interiors tender beneath craggly, crisp veneers. As a writer, I knew that I wanted to explore my relationship to Salvador and that part of my identity, so, towards that end, I sought out two chefs in particular, Anthony Salguero and Rosa Gonzalez. First, I met Anthony Salguero. 
He is the chef and owner of Popoca, a Salvadoran-inspired pop-up in downtown Oakland. I think it was pride or perhaps admiration that I felt swelling in my chest when I first heard what Anthony was doing. In short, applying his experience in fine dining to create what he calls progressive Salvadoran cuisine, while still using traditional techniques, including cooking with a comal over an open flame. At Popoca, I tasted for the first time traditional dishes like gallo and chicha, which Anthony prepares with chicken stewed in a fermented pineapple juice with turnips and prunes. For me, it was a revelation. I had never tasted dishes that were classic in foundation, but prepared in a seasonal ingredient-driven style that I'd seen a myriad times. The chicken was so tender, it practically cascaded from the bone. Its sonic broth was thick and pleasantly sweet. The prunes bobbed in the liquid like small candied islands. There were of course pupusas too, made with a rich self-milled masa. Some were stuffed with silky frijoles and garlic infused queso. Others delighted in Japanese braised pork shoulder. Like glimmering orbs, they reflected light from the fire and when cracked, they emitted steam like an exhortation to consume. After talking with Anthony, I learned that his father, like my mother, left El Salvador 30 plus years ago because of the country's civil war. But by contrast, Anthony's dad was extremely passionate about Salvadoran food and he passed that admiration on to Anthony. Anthony realized something. He needed to prepare and share the food he felt connected to. The food that he says was in his blood, his roots. After talking with Anthony, I spoke with Rosa Gonzalez, who is the co-owner and chef at Los Cocos, a restaurant in Oakland's Fruitvale neighborhood. Los Cocos opened its doors 37 years ago, before I was born. Its walls are the shade of marmalade and a bluebird awning overlooks the restaurant's facade. I spoke with Rosa to the repeated thwap of a tortilla, the sound of a meal's coronation at Los Cocos. Rosa told me that she grew up in El Salvador, where she began cooking at age nine. She lived there until the late 1970s when she was forced to leave, she told me, after being labeled subversive for speaking at work about a mass killing in a nearby park. After moving to the United States, Rosa settled in Oakland and in 1983 helped her brother to open Los Cocos because she loved to cook. To this day, her long-standing recipes are a source of pride. And despite feeling compelled to leave, Rosa still has so much affection for Salvador. She goes back at least once each year to purchase spices and seeds, which she uses to make horchata. The week after I meet Rosa, my mother visits me from Miami. I bring her to Rosa's restaurant where we order prolifically. I ask for the caldo de pollo and what I receive is a brothy missive to home. The soup is warm and honest and invigorating. The horchata is a tap dance of spice and cream. I watch my mother clutch a pupusa and fold it in half to create a crescent moon. She stuffs her creation with curtido, a spicy cabbage slaw. I laugh and ask if I can have a bite. As always, she gives me what she has. I copy her technique, exulting in memory. For Catherine, connecting to the Salvadorian diaspora and dishes like her grandmother's pupusa, coincided with her own pursuits to seek and find Salvadorian chefs and cooks within her own community. It's within those kitchens and on those plates that Catherine tasted and found the identity of her Hispanic heritage.
Chef Ashley Shanti. You're the chef de cuisine at Benny on Eagle, which is a historically African-American neighborhood in Asheville, North Carolina. Can you tell us about the restaurant at the Foundry Hotel and the neighborhood and the nature of your work there? Our restaurant is nestled in a neighborhood that was historically referred to as the block, and some of the older folks in the community still refer to it as that. So this neighborhood post-Jim Crow era was just a thriving African-American business district. It was full of Black-owned barbershops and hair salons, bakeries, restaurants, all of those things. And I mean, I even can remember myself just kind of coming through the Green Book and landing on North Carolina and wondering what Asheville, North Carolina would have looked like at that time and seeing all of these businesses in the Green Book that were on Eagle Street, right where we are right now, which is really amazing. And, you know, we pay homage to a lot of what the block used to be because of urban renewal. Things look a lot different. There are still some of those historic businesses still standing. Actually, one, a barbershop, which is still owned by the same family. We pay homage to a lot of the women that owned businesses and were chefs and bakers that ran kind of the block in the community and fed all of the children, people in need in the block. And we have actually four, uh, four portraits of these amazing women that were part of the community and kind of beacons of light and still are. Two of the four women in the portraits are still living. And that is um, Miss Mary Jo Johnson and Miss Hanan Shabazz, who actually is very much so a part of um, this project and involved in what we do. We kind of call her our culinary advisor. She makes our cornbread and fish cakes. And those are some of the things that people have known her for for so long in the community. And I mean, they come into our restaurant knowing that they're going to get the same fish cake today that Hanan made, you know, the same way 30 years ago. So it's really cool. And we try to do our best to serve the some of the marginalized of the community, underserved and underemployed. And, and yeah, we we just try and make good food and not take ourselves too seriously, but also make sure that we are doing our part by by uplifting the, the community that we're in. Your food has been described as Appalachian cuisine, which presumably blends all kinds of influences, Black folks, colonial influences, Native people, I want to make sure that I'm not putting you in a box by calling your food that, but within that historical and regional context, can you explain to us what Appalachian cuisine is? Appalachia, where we are specifically in Western North Carolina, there's what people call mountain culture. Um, You know, there's just a different way of preserving a lot of uh, legumes, beans, what people would consider peasant food. There's a lot of game meat. So, I mean, regionally, food is very familiar to me. My maternal great-grandmother, she was from Dan River, Virginia. So that is the western part of Virginia. I mean, she was Appalachian through and through, just, you know, who she was as a woman. But I don't think that as a Black woman, she considered herself uh, to be an Appalachian person. But she did consider herself to be Southern. So I think the food that my mother cooked is reminiscent of that. And I don't know that I considered what it was till this project and I started to explore my own identity through what I'm doing. 
it is difficult for me to describe my food outside of just calling it what it is regionally and just saying that it does just kind of describe who I am. I mean, it has nuances of um, in Geechee cuisine that that is part of the paternal side of my family. My paternal great-grandparents are from Ghana. So, I mean, there's some West African influences there as well. I love um, Japanese culture. So, I mean, I'm really inspired by that cuisine. So they're kind of nuances of a lot of different places regionally. And I think that that might be unexpected for some people, which I, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. Definitely. I, I love that too. And especially as an African-American woman who is in the kitchen, I'm seeing you get to experience the full breadth of the things that inspire you without limitation. And I'm sure that it's something that you're pushing against every day, but the fact that you're in a position to push at all brings me great joy. Can you tell me about the point in which you started to more clearly see and define yourself in your own food? What is it that you began to see? For so long, I've uh, worked in establishments that have been amazing and I've learned so much from, but that I've, I've cooked food that never felt like my own. That is why I feel like what I'm doing right now is so meaningful and it's so important to me because I do finally feel like I'm, I'm finding that identity through what I'm cooking. And it's something that I mean, I'm constantly asking myself. How does this relate to who I am? So uh, that's, that is a daily journey. And of course, now we're talking about identity and the civic initiatives that you've always been really focused on in your work. Do you have a vision for how this all comes together? Or is it that your personality just demands that you sample a bit from all parts of life? Uh, well, I think a, a very large part of that sampling was that quest for my identity mm. in the culinary world, especially as a Black queer woman um, in the kitchen. It is not uncommon to feel like you don't have a place and to feel like that's the world that you don't belong in. However, feeling like there's there's not much else you want to do or, or not, not many other fields that you belong in. So it was uh, a very large part of that was wanting to find some sense of belonging at, at times where I, I just didn't feel like I belonged at all. Yeah, I, I have dabbled quite a bit in, in order to get to where I am now. And do you feel like you belong now? I do. Yes, I, I do finally feel like I have found that place. And I mean, there are instances that happen on a daily basis that remind me that there is still a lot of work to be done. You know, there are still people that walk right past me and ask one of my cooks to sign the invoice because they can't imagine that I'm the chef mm -hmm. or, you know, guests watching me direct the kitchen all night and still asking me if they can talk to the chef. And, you know, there, there are a lot of... Uh, there, there's so many instances that occur like that. I still feel very empowered to be in the position that I'm in. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Yanni Cakes is a local adaptation of Jamaican Johnny Cakes, also known as Journey Cakes for the bread's ability to travel over long distances. So we now take you to Jamaica, where Whetstone Magazine contributor Anna Haynes is interviewing Chef Maurice Henry, who is making Yanni Cakes. Yeah, um, all right, so like I said, there are various, uh, there are like different species of the flower, different uh, types of the flower dough that we consume here in Jamaica. One most popular one is a dumpling, which is basically just flour, baking powder, water. All right, so people will make that they'll, and, and just fry and have it just like that. Then, then, then we move over to another one that we call festival. It's the same flour dough again, then they add, add a cornmeal to the flour dough. So corn cornmeal is added to that same flour dough and a little bit of sugar and um, that one is, is called festival. Typically round but uh, people make them elongated or just flat so you'll find it like that. And then there is one, the Johnny cake is basically the same flour dough with just sugar in it and a little bit of butter mm. and, um, and that's what we call Johnny cake. So it's flour, water, butter, sugar. That's it? And they fried, they're all fried. And these are used mainly for uh, as a starch, and it goes uh, particularly, uh, typically all day. People will have them for breakfast, they'll have it for lunch, they'll have it for dinner, even late night snack. Because you stop at most of these uh, little cook shops, they'll have uh, fried chicken, jerk chicken with festival or with the, with the Johnny cakes or with, with, with uh, fried dumplings. And um, it's part of what we do, it's part of our culture, it's part of, um, part of us. So we grew up on it. Coming from the club, 2 o'clock in the morning, you find a snack shop that's open, that's what they will have. Mm. They'll have fried dumplings, festival. You can find iterations of Johnny Cakes all along the eastern coast, from Newfoundland to Jamaica, sometimes called Johnny Cakes, Johnny Cakes, Ho Cakes, Journey Cakes, or Johnny Bread. 
The origins are a bit of a mystery, but as Chef explains, Johnny Cakes are an essential part of the Jamaican culinary identity and the epitome of Caribbean street and beach food. Quoting from Anna, her investigation into the bread's muddled history would find that the first record of Johnny Cakes dates back to the 1600s, when European settlers to Rhode Island supposedly learned how to make the bread from the native Algonquian tribes, for whom maize was a staple ingredient in their diet. The humble bread made its way south along the Atlantic coast, and today various preparations can be found as far as Newfoundland and as far south as Columbia. But still, there remains no consensus on when Johnny Cakes were first created and by whom, nor is there any clear evidence on how they made their way to the Isla Popa. But why do we need to know where our food traditions come from? And why do they need to be owned by one culture? I think the question of what is curry is one that, you know, Indians in the so-called motherland, right, like in the Indian subcontinent and then also in the diaspora have been wrestling with for centuries now. That's Arohi Narain. Arohi tells us about her experience eating Indian curry and Japanese curry as an Indian woman in Tokyo. Arohi unpacks the colonial history of Japanese curry as a cultural and culinary artifact brought to Japan by the British imperial officers from India. She links the historical trajectory of curry to the experience of being around and consuming curry as an Indian woman from New Delhi who's in Japan. In doing so, she examines many of its cultural implications and her own experience as an Indian woman feeling both alienated and reduced to a singular dish, in this case curry, while at the same time finding that curry houses were the places that provided her the most comfort and acceptance in what she describes as an otherwise very lonely city. But when you say curry, it's so vague as to be meaningless. Um, it doesn't refer to a particular style or a, or a technique, but really it's often used to flatten the diversity of, you know, foods in an entire subcontinent. Um, yeah, so that's my kind of roundabout way to answer what is curry. <laughs> yes. It doesn't really exist. And for something that doesn't really exist, there are, you know, infinite variations and, and interpretations of what it could be. Perfect answer. During a semester abroad in 2017 at the Lhasa University in Tokyo, she explains her specific experience eating Japanese curry versus Indian curry. In terms of some specificity, what is, what is Japanese curry? Japanese curry, you know, it's really its own thing. Um, and what interests me about Japanese curry, right, of course, it's a part of like the edible history of Japan, it's been called, but it has roots in the Indian subcontinent. And then secondly, it's sort of the antithesis of what I think in the West or even globally is most revered about Japanese cuisine. You know, when you think of 
Japanese food is all about like the freshness or the minimalism in terms of both like form and content. Consistency of Japanese curry rice, like this thickened roux, um, gloopy. You you don't eat it with chopsticks, right? It's quite the opposite of um, curry. Is a very maximalist kind of exercise. It's it's almost vulgar. <laughs> I want to say. What was your experience like as an Indian woman? Because we're talking about the details of the dish, but for you, dining out was your was how you experienced the culture. Mediated by curry in particular, right? Culturally or on an individual level, there would be times when, you know, instead of being greeted by my peers like "Hello" or "Good morning," they would sort of see my face and say, "Oh, I ate." curry for lunch today <laughs> right. right so sort of on an individual level that became this distilled entity that represented you know their experiences with curry <laughs> generally um often people would ask me you know like which curry do you prefer like is it the japanese one you know which is sweet and mild or is it the indian kind which is spicy and and unpalatable for a lot of people um you know i was even asked like i've heard that cats in india eat curry can you can you confirm or deny this um yeah so <laughs> on a on a cultural individual level you know i often felt like these questions that i was asked right did not leave a lot of room for nuance um either in terms of kind of talking about the cuisine um of my country of origin or or even about my identity Arohi's experience eating curry in Japan became a broader questioning of her identity abroad For me I mean I didn't go to Japan to look for you know authentic Indian food right that's not what I was there but in these attempts that sort of peers people around me were making to engage with me or or make me feel at home or welcome i was really kind of coming away from the interaction feeling doubly alienated mm-hmm. right um like on a personal level i was sort of curious and and eager to learn more um i think on on my part trying to do my best to sort of do the work and not come to the table with my own misconceptions or stereotypes. Um, but often I felt like maybe I would not be met halfway. And of course, I mean, I'm always learning and I wasn't, you know, I'm not an expert, um, but I felt like oftentimes there was not kind of the curiosity along with empathy that, I was hoping for. Yeah. What about when you were actually dining out in restaurants? W- what were your feelings um, as a solo diner in Tokyo? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a kind of well-documented culture of solo dining, mm-hmm. right, in in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that is kind of reserved for, you know, the kind of white-collar worker, so the salaryman. Right, that's usually the archetypal solo diner, like a a ramen shop, you know, at an unearthly hour. Um, 
slurping on his on his noodles by himself, right? That's an image that we've I think seen many times over. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, now you kind of swap this salary man for an Indian woman, youngish, <laughs> um, and it becomes quite a different equation, right? Um, there were many times when people next to me would try to engage me in in conversation or clearly wanted to, but maybe were afraid that I wouldn't, you know, be able to speak Japanese. Um, and I had a lot of great conversations with people who, you know, owned and, and ran these restaurants or were cooking, um, which is kind of, kind of this conflict that I have, right, where on the one hand, I felt like I was being pushed towards curry, particularly in the South Asian kind of restaurant context, right? I was pushed towards that. Um, and for these people who were pushing me, it was their way of being hospitable or um, trying to make me feel like I was being taken care of, right? Which was a strange and, and isolating experience. But then at the same time, when I did encounter South Asians who were running these kind of naan and curry restaurants, um, those were moments of unprecedented tenderness for me, right? And what is otherwise, I think, a very lonely city, you know, so these small kind of family-run restaurants, there's Bollywood playing on the TV screen, um, you know, usually the, the restaurant would be named something like Bindi or, or Sari or Mango or something like that. Those moments, as much as I wanted to kind of resist this totalizing sweep of a term even like curry I would say that those are still the times that I've felt most welcome and and taken care of in Tokyo right usually at the doorway of a curry house mediated by some kind of imagined or actual shared history and and food culture and identity that is so true and so powerful as well Um, so when you say that you were pushed towards curry yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of South Asians living in Japan. Um, something like thirty thousand Indians, and then um, you know, another other numbers for like Pakistanis and and Bangladeshis and Nepali. And documentation is not very um, pristine. Um, so the sight of, you know, another brown face as much as I didn't want to be stereotyped or I didn't want people to think that two brown people were probably related or, you know, something like that. As much as that was the case on an intellectual level, I couldn't deny that on a kind of emotional, personal level, I still did feel like, you know, we were connected in some way. And it also sort of, these experiences made me realize that, you know, we're still really immersed in a in a landscape of like white food stories or white stories. Um, you know, when you look at sort of travelogues for Japan, you'll still come up with hundreds of results of, you know, white men usually who went to Japan and, and discovered Japanese food or discovered Japanese culture. Um, but I, when I was preparing to go to Japan, 
I almost went there without any points of reference, right, to understand sort of the possible parameters of the experience that I was embarking upon. Um, so everything was coming to me as something of a surprise and I was sort of figuring things out by myself, you know. Often I felt like I was the first ever Indian person to go to Japan, which obviously is not the truth, but just that some of those stories are not getting out or we haven't always done the work that we need to to be able to listen for those kinds of stories. Yes, definitely. And this is something that I think about not just in the context of food either, right? but even the fact that I'm having this conversation with you right now right. in English, <laughs> which is not for, you know, the colonial history. I don't know that I would be able to do that. Um, yeah, and then I think with something like food where perhaps it's harder to trace the origin or um, sort of claim like a, a perfect unmediated history where that becomes even more complicated. Um, it's definitely a source of kind of emotional <laughs> conflict for me. Um, and it's really something that I wouldn't say I have answers to or that I feel completely at ease about. It's something that I'm constantly learning about. Um, and I would also say that besides kind of colonialism, there's also other factors mediating the kind of food that I have had access to both India and elsewhere, right? There's um, caste, for instance, which I think even now is um, somewhat neglected in a lot of contemporary analyses of food. You know, more recently there's been more writing about it. Um, but that's something that I haven't completely interrogated for myself. Arohi's story points to an important lesson about the diaspora, that as much as food is a marker of identity and expression of our culture, it is not the sole defining factor. That at our base, we are all humans experiencing and learning about each other through a variety of cultural exchanges. Arohi at times felt reduced to curry. It became a stereotype that isolated her and one that she could not escape. So what is the diaspora? The diaspora is many things, cultural and ideological strains from the homeland, sensory evocations, a conversation with sentence after sentence that begins with, I remember. It is an aftertaste a source of pride, nostalgia, and reimagination. To be part of the diaspora is to have endured. And though the creation of a new home becomes a worthy possibility, belonging is not promised. Thank you to our guests today, Sam Butar Butar and co-owner Winter Shayu of Third Culture Bakery in Berkeley, California, Chef Ashley Shanti from Benny on Eagle in Asheville, North Carolina, 
Whetstone contributor Anna Haynes and chef Maurice Henry, and to journalist Catherine Bowen and Arohi Narain, whose full pieces you can read in forthcoming Volume 6 of Whetstone Magazine. Special thanks to my business partner who makes all things possible at Whetstone, our co-founder, Melissa Shee. Thanks, Mel. Thank you to Celine Glager, who is our lead producer, to Kat Hong, our editor, to Haven Obasalase, and Quentin LeBeau, our production interns. To our friends at iHeartRadio for helping us bring you this podcast, to Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, engineer J.J. Pausway, and executive producer Christopher Hasiotis. I'm your host, The Origin Forager, Stephen Satterfield, and we will be back here next week with more from Whetstone Magazine's Point of Origin podcast. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Come.